A real treat on the Historian's podcast today. We're joined by Rob Edelman and Audrey Kupferberg, a married couple, professors of film history for many years, the University of Albany, frequently heard with film reviews and call-in shows on WAMC Public Radio in uh, New York State and Western New England. First up is Rob Edelman. How you doing, Rob? I'm doing fine. I'm doing real good. Happy to be here. Okay. Rob Edelman has written extensively on a number of topics, but he's uh, what we're going to talk with him about is baseball history, especially baseball and its relationship to the movies. He's co-editor of a new book, From Spring Training to Screen Test, Baseball Players Turned Actors. Who are, are some of the uh, baseball players who became actors? Oh, my heavens. <laughs> I mean, you can start from those who pretty much are not all that well-known today. Mike Donlan, who 100 years ago played mostly for the New York Giants, um, actually more than 100 years ago. Um, He might have been in the Hall of Fame if you look up his numbers, but for a lot of reasons he wasn't. In any case, he became a film actor, a vaudevillian, a phenomenal career uh, he was uh, not so much starring in films um, as playing important roles, particularly during the 1920s in a range of classic films. And he passed away around 1933, 34, um, at the very end. If you're watching an older film from that time period, you may pop into Mike, you may run into Mike Donlan uh, playing a bartender in a scene, and he has one or two lines or whatever. But he had a very, very lengthy career. He was very good friends with John Barrymore. Uh, I've done a number of articles on him. Then you take this all the way to Babe Ruth. In the 1920s, there was Babe Ruth starring in a couple of silent films. You see him playing himself in the early 1940s, Pride of the Yankees, the Lou Gehrig biopic, um, and on and on and on. He also, uh, my, my sense of uh, Babe Ruth, he just had a natural talent, a natural ability to hug the camera. And I really believe he was just naturally funny. And if the Three Stooges decided to expand, become the Four Stooges, Babe Ruth easily could have uh, <laughs> taken up that role. You know, you'd have Mo Larry Curly and the Babe, you know, throwing <laughs> pies at each other and, and entertaining each other and entertaining the audience. Um, tons and tons of actors. Um, Jackie Robinson, for example, actually played himself in the 1950 film titled, biopic titled The Jackie Robinson Story, which came three years after he integrated Major League Baseball. Lou Gehrig actually played himself in a film titled Rawhide from the late 1930s. It's a, a B-Western, and there's Lou playing Lou, um, and on and on and on. So there is a lot out there. You also have a lot of actors who had very, very... Tiny roles, walk-on roles, cameos, whatever, in a range of films. And in this book, we're dealing with um, biographies of a number of actors. We're also dealing with people who were not ball players, but who were involved in one aspect or, of, or another with show business. Everybody from Gene Autry, the uh, cowboy superstar who, uh, who owned the, uh, the Angels team, um, to Thomas Tull. 
who produced the most recent uh, um, Jackie Robinson biopic titled 42. Uh, you know, he basically is known as a very, very successful producer, but he also is a baseball fanatic, and he was behind uh, 42. He's now involved with the Baseball Hall of Fame. Anyway, Ask me a question like this, I can go on for hours. <laughs> Forever. Well, let me ask you about the, the kind of the the big picture. Uh, what, the one thing that occurs to me is th- that a lot of the uh, baseball players go into movies and uh, people in like the movie industry have something to do with baseball teams. I mean, they're both, uh, they're both forms of entertainment. Oh, positively. Positively. Um, I mean, we go to the – if you're a baseball fan, you go to a game – uh, to be entertained, um, whether it's a major league game, a minor league game. I do a lot of, uh, I go to a lot of ball games, uh, the Syracuse, which is the AAA Washington Nationals. I love the Amsterdam Mohawks. I go mm-hmm. in, whenever I'm in town, I'll go to a Mohawks game. That's a college league. Uh, it's a summer league, uh, wooden bat league, and the Mohawks are so beautifully uh, done, um, you know, they're so entertaining. Uh, and same thing for film. You know, you go to a movie and a film might uh, massage your mind, it might make you think, but also you go because you want to escape from whatever it is that you're dealing with and you just want to be entertained. This is true today, this was true 100 years ago. Yeah. Um, also, the is there a, a current crop of uh, actors who are into baseball now or or ones you think I'm sorry who, who baseball players who are into going into movies now I mean uh, or who's the most recent one to do this well okay the one the one that pops into my head uh, first and foremost is Bill Murray now every year I go to the Toronto Film Festival every September um, and I tell my students, I'm going to be away for the next week or so, so, you know, I'll come back and I'll have stories for you. Um, but that two or three years ago, I met Bill Murray in Toronto, and I said to him, you know, he is a, a fanatic uh, Chicago Cubs fan. So I said to him, so tell me, when are they going to not just be in the World Series, but win the World Series, because they hadn't won in, you know, over 100 years. And so he looked at me and with a very straight face said, two years. Well, wouldn't you know it was exactly two years, not three, not four, not one, where the Cubs actually made the World Series and actually won the World Series. So as far as I'm concerned, Bill Murray is a genius. But he, <laughs> but he is, uh, you know, he just loves, uh, loves his team, and as any fan, as any devoted fan might. You have uh, Ben Affleck being a big Boston Red Sox fan, Um, on and on and on. If you go back into history, you have everybody from Ethel Barrymore, who was a major fan, Tallulah Bankhead. I don't know, maybe you have to be of a certain age to know who these people are. But these were actors who were fanatics. Um, Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, in the book, that I've edited. I've also done a number of essays in the book. This dates to the late 19th century. You had DeWolf Hopper, um, who became famous for reciting Casey at the Bat. Um, he was a fanatical fan. Uh, and so I do, I do a piece on him and a bunch of other people. 
goes all the way back that far. You know, back then they'd go to uh, the Polo Grounds, uh, go to they were New York Giants fanatics, uh, and these were their devotions. So this is nothing new. You know, uh, the actor, the entertainer, loving baseball. This is nothing new. Rob Edelman is uh, with us. Uh, He is editor of the book From Spring Training to Screen Test, Baseball Players Turned uh, Actors. Actually, he's co-editor of of this book. Is it out now? Um, No, it should be out. um, They're they're saying it'll be out before the Academy Awards. So that's just in a few weeks. Um, But Bill Nolan, who's my co-editor, and I, we put a lot of work into it. It's published, by the way, by Sabre, which is the Society for American Baseball Research. Um, I've done a lot of writing and a lot of research uh, for Sabre. And again, my my specialty really is combining baseball with with, uh, film, with Mm -hmm. entertainment. Um, I should say, though, no, I'm I'm not a native of Amsterdam. Audrey is. I'm not. I grew up in Brooklyn. Now, I'm old enough to have gone to the Brooklyn Dodgers, to Ebbets Field, but, you know, I didn't have a father. He passed away when I was barely out of diapers. There was nobody ever to take me to Ebbets Field, and that is one of my disappointments um, Mm. of my life. And recently, I've been fascinated by the Brooklyn Dodgers. Obviously, I, you know... Damn the day that they, that Walter O'Malley, uh, you know, abandoned uh, the borough of churches. But lately, I've been doing a number of pieces for Sabre Publications on individuals who were, in one way, connected to the Dodgers. Not so and much you know, the ball And you know what I think, uh, Rob? Sure. We probably have time for you to, because you told me this story a few days ago. This, who was Hilda Chester? Hilda Chester, okay. Hilda Chester was a very, very famous... Um, baseball fan. This is in the 1940s and in the 1950s. She was known for her cowbell. She'd show up uh, with and, and yell in Brooklynese at the different uh, players, and she'd bang her cowbell. Um, fascinating story. Um, I mean, she was a major, a major national celebrity in the 40s and early 50s. Now, if she was doing this in Milwaukee or St. Louis, it would maybe she would be a local uh, personality. But given the fact that this is New York City, she became nationally known. She was in a couple of films. She would be on uh, television shows, on radio shows. Um, you'd come up with an article about the, the celebrities who were at an event, and they would mention the, you know, the, someone like a Milton Berle, and in the same breath, they'd be Hilda Chester. Um, Hilda refused to talk about her, her early uh, youth. And when the Dodgers left, she really faded into obscurity. And to cut to the chase, she ended up um, living in a nursing home. Uh, and when she passed away in the late 1970s, she ended up uh, being buried in an unmarked grave. So what does this tell you about celebrity? What does yeah, this a... tell you about, uh, you know, you're famous today and tomorrow, who the hell are you? You know, That's right. It comes and, it is. It comes but and other, goes. But other people who I've been involved with are the Dodgers Symphony. This was a, a bunch of Dodger fans who had their own band, and they'd show up at games. Um, Happy Felton, who uh, hosted, he had an interesting showbiz career. In the 1950s, he hosted uh, this Not Whole Gang TV show uh, mentioned for kids that would appear 
uh, on TV right before Dodgers games at Ebbets Field. Um, a bunch of other people. Uh, so this has become fascinating to me. In the nine, in not the nineties, actually before that, I knew a man by the name of Sid Loberfeld. This was when I was mm-hmm. still in Brooklyn. He was a, uh, a downtown Brooklyn lawyer. Um, he passed away. Uh, he, I think he lived into his nineties. But in any case, Sid Loberfeld was the first. This is nineteen thirty. He was the first person to broadcast a Brooklyn Dodgers uh, radio. Uh, game on the radio. Um, soon afterwards, he gave that up and he, he uh, went to law school. But just knowing him, I, I did a piece on him. You know, this is a, an asterisk in baseball history, but, you know, you, you, you're from Brooklyn. This becomes fascinating. I'm sure so, it does. Like I said, I and you were also telling me the sad story that uh, where Ebbets Field used to be, they don't let the kids play baseball anymore. Where Ebbets Field used to be, it now is a housing development, a project, and I've I've been there any number of times because I have when I go back to Brooklyn, I have friends who live not all that far away, and you know there's a uh, a sign up on one on the one of the buildings, and that sign says no ball playing. Huh, uh, now to me the uh, the irony there is obvious. Well, Rob Edelman, I thank you for joining us. We'll move on to talk to uh, Audrey Kupferberg in just a moment. Uh, the uh, book that is the most recent, or coming out soon, if it's not out already, uh, co-edited by Rob Edelman, is From Spring Training to Screen Test, Baseball Players Turned Actors. Thank you, Rob. Have a good day. You bet. You too. We'll be right back on the Historian's Podcast for a conversation with Audrey Kupferberg, Uh, Rob Edelman's uh, wife, among her other many accomplishments, uh, that'll happen in just a few seconds. I wanted to mention to you that the Historian's Podcast is made possible by your donations to our GoFundMe campaign. We have a big goal this year, $5,000, and we're asking you to donate uh, through GoFundMe. Our page is GoFundMe.com forward slash historians. 2018. That's uh, Historians 2018 after the forward slash. Or you can send me a check made out to Bob Cudmore, uh, care of 125 Horstman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. And thank you very much. On the Historians podcast, we continue with Audrey Kupferberg. How you doing, Audrey? I'm fine. How are you, Bob? Okay. I'm told that you retired a couple years ago from your job teaching film history at the University uh, at Albany. You've uh, lived in many places and worked in many places, Connecticut, Washington, and Los Angeles. But as your husband, uh, Rob, uh, mentioned, you now live in Amsterdam, New York, and you moved there. uh, Well, I don't know. I should ask you, why did you move there? Well, people ask us that, and we have several answers. (laughs) One was uh, my mother was here, and and she was living alone and growing older, and uh, we felt uh, we would like to live a lifestyle with her, share her lifestyle and take care of her a little bit, and she would give us good company and good advice. Uh, another thing is I, I've been in love with Amsterdam, New York, my whole life. Uh, I was born at St. Mary's Hospital and, uh, in 1949, to put things in 
place and okay. uh, and grew up here. Uh, this is home. I, I love being other places, but when I talk about home, it's this house in Amsterdam, New York. And, and you're living in the house that your mom and dad lived in. I mean, you lived in as yes, a child. Yes, actually had it built in the mid to late 30s. And uh, we, uh, Rob and I, uh, purchased the house uh, from from the siblings, you know, uh, years ago, 1990 or so. Well, no, excuse me, around 2000. Uh, and it's ours, and it's home. <laughs> and we've redone it, modernized. You know, it's, it's a, a wonderful place to be. Peaceful. I'm looking out the window at a beautiful snowfall right now. <laughs> That's true. I see yeah. it too. Um, Audrey Kupferberg could uh, talk with us about uh, movie topics as uh, as her husband did, but she's wanted to discuss downtown Amsterdam in the years where she grew up, which were basically the years I grew up. Although I'm a bit older, Audrey, I was uh, born in 1945, um, and t- she wants to talk about. Uh, downtown Amsterdam in the 50s and 60s, it's kind of a window into the lives of Jewish families in Amsterdam, including your own. Uh, You mentioned your mom, uh, who was Ray Kupferberg, uh, and your dad was Samuel Kupferberg, and they were merchants downtown. Uh, I've written about this in uh, one of my books, actually. Uh, They uh, owned a store. What was the store? Uh, The store was People's Silk Store, on uh, right on Main Street in the heart of downtown, and uh, they sold draperies and uh, yard goods, uh, bedding, uh, Venetian blinds, uh, custom upholstery, that kind of thing, dry goods. Right. And in fact, um, and, and I know something about your family story because of the article I wrote, um, your dad was uh, born in Romania, correct? That's right. He he was actually born in uh, a village near the uh, city of Yasi, uh, Romania, in 1893. And uh, he, uh, his brothers, his older brothers, came to the United States in, in the late 1890s and very early 1900s. Unfortunately, my father's age put him into World War One, and he couldn't leave Romania. Uh, the Jews of Romania were not considered citizens till after World War One, so he was considered an alien, and uh, he didn't get to leave for the United States until 1920. So he was 27 years old. Really? And then ultimately he finds his way up to uh, Amsterdam and opens a, opens a store, he, or he bought a store, isn't that, wasn't that he correct? He bought a store, yes. Uh, he was working with his older brothers in New York City. They were all in the fabric business. And uh, he, was, he, along with his brothers, were searching for uh, a store for my father to purchase so he could set himself up in business. And in 1926, he heard of a store called People's Silk Store in Amsterdam, New York. Uh, he came up here on the, probably on the train and uh, liked what he saw. So he, he moved to Amsterdam in 1926. 
and he married your mom the next year. Yes. Yeah, by then he was in his 30s, and uh, he... uh, he was lonely, you know. <laughs> right. uh, he found my mother. <laughs> and she was in Schenectady, as I recall, right? Right. My grandparents, my aunt, maternal grandparents, uh, ran a bakery in Schenectady, uh, the Abramson family, David and Ellen Abramson. And uh, my mother uh, used to work in the bakery after uh, high school, uh, after classes. And uh, my father heard about this nice young woman who worked in the bakery, who was, you know, an uh, an available young woman. (laughs) And he he, uh, met her and uh, she wasn't impressed at first. She thought he was uh, uh, what what used to be called a greenhorn. You know, he was an immigrant who didn't speak, as they said, didn't speak a good English. Uh-huh. And okay. and uh, but after after a few weeks, she saw the goodness shine through him, and they got married three months after meeting. One other uh, story I'd like to ask you about that uh, you've told me in the past is your uh, dad died when you were quite young and um, that, uh, you know, affected you deeply. Yes. Um, My father died in 1957. I was eight years old and uh, I didn't really understand what was going on. In those days, in the 50s, uh, most parents didn't speak uh, of death in reality to children. And uh, the fact that I look exactly like him, I'm the, the woman version of my father, uh, really uh, caused a, a number of upsetting moments. I remember walking on Main Street a number of times when uh, women, older women, would come over to me and start crying on my shoulder and saying, you look exactly like your father. And my mother would always tell me, uh, you act just like your father in a good way. (laughs) That was a compliment. Uh, So I grew up in the shadow of my father and very proud to be in the shadow of my father. Indeed. Well, uh, maybe we should move on to, uh, to some of the other uh, merchants, uh, Jewish merchants in Amsterdam and, and their stores. One, uh, you know, that I certainly mean, I remember people's silk store, but it wasn't when I frequented probably. I think my mother did. Probably. But one store I used to go to, I tended to call Mortans, but how, how do you like to pronounce it? Well, my family pronounced it Morton's because uh, Morton Guttenberg was the owner of the store. Uh, I know a lot of people pronounced it Mortans, but that seemed to be kind of an affected name. So my family always said Mortans, but it it was generally called Mortans. And what kind of store was that? That was a very fine menswear store. Uh, I uh, just as you didn't uh, frequent people's silk store, I didn't frequent fine menswear stores. Right. But uh, but that my brother certainly did, and my father did, and uh, it was really high class merchandise. That's the thing that people uh, don't possibly don't understand about downtown Amsterdam. There were a lot of high quality stores along Main Street and Market Street. 
Yeah. Uh, and, and I'll mention another in a second, but just another word about the Guttenbergs. There was also Paul Guttenberg. I'm not sure if that was Morton's brother or son. No, but son. He, his son. Uh, his son. Okay, because um, he uh, was the last proprietor of Mortans and mm-hmm. uh, has been active since. I believe he's retired now, but he uh, and his wife had a nursing home they operated in Amsterdam for some years. And he, he was just a very, uh, what shall I say? I, I really, in, he, he was always such a positive guy. Yeah, not only positive, but urbane, you know, a very stylish, that's, uh, good-looking yeah, right. man. Yeah. Well, and speaking of stylish, you were telling me about a store again, which I'd, I'd not heard of, man. I heard of People Silk. But you said there. Were, what was the top women's wear store as far as you? Yeah, thought, there were concerned? two that I thought were fantastic. One is Leeds, L-E-E-D apostrophe S. Uh, it was run by a Jewish man from Schenectady named Murray Prager, and uh, that, along with Hallett's, were the two. I would say the two leading women's wear stores. Yeah. Well, it's, it's funny you mentioned Hallett's. Uh, I knew Helene Hallett uh, rather well. My mother and she were friends, um, and they lived on our street. When my parents finally bought a house, we were, you know, they they did the classic immigrant uh, dance in Amsterdam. They started in the East End, moved up to Reed Hill, then uh, we they ended up on Peter Lane, which was like almost the suburbs, Mm. and Helene. And her husband, Gil, as I recall, you know, lived a few uh, doors away. But yes, she was, uh, you know, very, she was like Paul Guttenberg, you know, in a female way. I mean, she was always so stylish when you'd see her. Yes, and so well-spoken, you know, uh, really a, a model, yeah. Oh, she had been a model? That no, I, no, a model for a young woman who would go in and meet with her and talk with her. Uh, she was somebody you could look up to. She knew her business. Uh, she was like my mother. She was a really good businesswoman, uh, very logical, very uh, grounded, practical woman. Yeah. Um, maybe we were swapping stories. My mom worked downtown for a long time at Singer Sewing Center, where she sold stuff, and she also taught sewing classes. So I would spend some Friday nights with her when my father was working second shift at the mill. Well, that's that's another thing that we can uh, explain, that Friday night was the big night in downtown Amsterdam. Uh, it, Thursday night was the big night in Schenectady when the stores were open till nine. But Amsterdam had Friday night, which was kind of more exciting than Thursday, I think. The opening yeah, think, of the weekend, you know. Yeah, it was. Well, going through our litany of the um, of some of the stores in downtown Amsterdam, you were telling me that in the bus station uh, there was a concession stand, and who operated that? Yeah, uh, that, now this is a vague memory, but I believe it's true that Bill and Eva Levy uh, had, it, it was called the waiting room. That's where you went to sit down while you were waiting for your bus to arrive. And they had a newspaper stand and candy and, uh, you know, things that people would buy while they were waiting. Uh, so they, yeah, they they were there. It was a big building, as I recall, big and kind of dark inside, uh, and and well populated. I mean, it, Amsterdam had a, a a population of people on the move, you know, in those True. days. Yeah, yeah. Oh. 
Well, I tell you, we're just about out of time, uh, Audrey. Is there one more thought you'd like to leave with us? Uh, yeah, I, I think that it's interesting to look at all the Jewish merchants. I mean, there are probably 15 or more, 20 or more uh, stores, and how that fits into a long tradition of Jewish lifestyle that goes back to Eastern Europe in the 1800s uh, in the shtetls, the marketplaces, where you had people, uh, Jewish men uh, who were storekeepers and some who only had a push cart and some who had a, an older version of department stores. So the, <laughs> well, I'm sorry, Audrey, we are now just out of time. We've been hearing some reminiscences about downtown Amsterdam from Audrey Kupferberg. This has been the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudborn.